Hi everyone. Today we are joined by Dustin. Let me tell people who you are first of all, and then you can add in more details. Right now you're working at Strive. You have two startups. One is called Button Down. The other one is Spoonfill. And you are writing two newsletters per week, and you are running almost every other day, or at least training every other day. And you also volunteer for an organization called Unloop. Did I miss anything? <laughs> I think that's pretty much it. Yeah. That was a handful. So. how do you do this <laughs> i think time management is like one of those things that uh you can read a lot about and i know i read a lot about especially coming out of college where being in college i felt like my schedule was often accounted for um a lot of the time i was sort of one of those stereotypical people who like i was pursuing a double major and i was involved in a bunch of clubs and stuff but ultimately your your day expands to fill all the the work you have so it's like okay well i can do all these things and i have these problem sets to and all this sort of stuff and then i'm done when i graduated from college shifting your schedule from a here are all these amorphous assignments you have to juggle to here is just a 9 to 5 but you're going to be exhausted at the end of that uh was definitely a, a different shift for me and i really became interested in figuring out okay how do i get to the same level of energy and uh excitement and commitment to all these things that i was able to do in college um and it's like it, it's a very boring answer and i think it varies a lot from person to person but the the magic thing for me was just like having a schedule like committing to an actual schedule and saying that i almost feel a little gross because i feel like there's this kind of parody that exists online where you've seen like kind of the linkedin parody posts where it's like oh day in the life of a startup ceo you know where you like wake up at 5 a.m. and you do all of these things by 6 a.m. and just seem so dumb and overwrought but my what i've found is like a very very pared down version of that where you're just optimizing for consistency you're not trying to do like 20 bajillion things by 8 a.m. because then mm -hmm. you're just going to be exhausted but i think at least for me waking up at a very specific time and being like okay by 8 a.m. i'm going to go through my emails and make coffee and work out and those sorts of things it takes some getting used to i know the the uh, first like a month or so i was like okay i'm going to work out by 8 a.m. and then go to work every single day i was just so dead by the end of it but adding on those those little habits and those things that you can slot into your schedule and having it be second nature as opposed to making you summon the activation energy each day to be like okay well now what should i do now what should i do that's what i've found to be the most successful yeah i guess habit is one thing which once you start building it and if you don't do the same thing every day you can't really sleep even though i'm really bad at building habits but once i do it's really hard for me to sleep at night if i have not done that particular task that day So I know you joined Stripe 2 years ago. How has it been so far and what are you currently working on at Stripe? Yeah, um as you said I joined Stripe just over 2 years ago. Um when I joined Stripe it was around a dozen or so people. I knew mm -hmm. I wanted to go into an office prior to me joining. I thought they were just based in like SF or remote and so being able to go into an office again was was really exciting for me and since joining the the tiny little office of a dozen or two people has grown to like 300 so watching and helping contribute to that growth has been super fun at stripe specifically i work on financial reporting and analytics products the most notable of which is probably sigma which is sort of an sql interface 
on top of all your Stripe data. If you're, you know, a small merchant, you can probably just hit some REST calls and be like, all right, give me all my charges, give me all my customers, I can store that mm -hmm. in a database and that's fine. But if you're a really big merchant and you've got you know, millions of transactions per day, you really can't access them via REST. You need some sort of more data warehousey kind of solution. And that's what Sigma and some of the other products we work on is tailored for, those like larger customers who need to do large scale analysis of their financial data. Why is it that most of the people I admire in software engineering, like you, Robert Heaton, Julia Evans, all of you guys work at Stripe. Why is that? <laughs> That's, you know, hard <laughs> to say because I feel like Stripe is definitely, I mean, it was a company that I originally was interested in because you look at some of these like resources like you know, Hacker News and programming on Reddit and stuff and like mm -hmm. a lot of the most helpful, most friendly folks I saw on the internet had Stripe on their resume and that's definitely what made Stripe jump out to me. Um, and then I guess the internal answer is like there's no real secret reason. I think there's this tendency, whether it's Stripe or Facebook or Amazon or any of these like big lauded companies to be like, oh, they must have some sort of secret cultural sauce <laughs> that like produce and attracts these kind of people. And I think the boring answer is like, that's not true. It's every company has a specific hiring process and you have to be able to set an internal culture that values things like really strong communication and empathy for others and uh, earnestness and desire to learn and these things like there's no secret book you get when you join stripe that's like here are all the secrets of how to be a great employee it's just i think a very slow and implicit but deliberate culture of trying to nurture those things of like we want people who are really friendly and who want to teach others because it turns out that generally makes people a better engineer if they're patient and they're empathetic Okay, that brings me to the next question. I know you used to work at Amazon before joining Stripe, and I was reading one of your posts about how in order to be a better employee, instead of learning more about your tech stack, which you should know, you should also focus on learning the business sides of things and how everything works. For a bigger company like Amazon and even Microsoft, where I am interning right now, it, these are huge companies, and you are most of the time siloed in one part of the product. Do you feel like you get this sense of being a better employee by learning more about the other sides of businesses, more at Stripe as compared to Amazon? How is that different? What do you feel like is the major difference between working at Stripe and Amazon in that regard? Totally. I think the major trade-off uh, when you work for a bigger company versus a smaller company, right, is a sense of trading breadth for depth. Mm -hmm. If you are working not just at a company of Stripe size, where like Stripe is still you know, thousands of employees, hundreds of engineers, you're not going to be going all across the entire surface area of what Stripe offers. You're gonna be working on the specific application, specific feature product offering, or mm -hmm. even a piece of the infrastructure. But if you go even further than that, and it's like um, a series A or series B startup, where you might be one of a dozen or a couple dozen engineers total, you're going to be touching a lot, lot of parts of that system. You're going to be touching, you know, search one day and caching the next day and then building out an MVP for a new feature for a handful of users the following day. You're going to touch a lot of things, but often the technical demands of what you're building are not going to be necessarily requiring depth. Uh, I think a lot at Amazon or at a company like Microsoft where you are meant to master a subsystem of a subsystem of a subsystem of a subsystem, right? And you need to build that 
as best as you can because the technical demands are so much higher. If you're building like a sync engine for Microsoft Azure or something, mm -hmm. like that needs to be able to handle thousands of transactions per second. And you have to go through the rigmarole of like designing and architecting something that is really, really resilient as opposed to if you're working on a series A startup and you need to build a sync engine, you're gonna spend uh, maybe a day or a week researching third-party solutions because you need to have something that meets your go-to-market plan. It doesn't need to scale to millions of people. If you have found something that then breaks once you've hit millions of people, it meant it did its job, it got you to that level of scale, <laughs> then you can find out something else. That is true. So I think the, the, the trade-off that I often think about where you can level up at being a pure engineer much much faster and much more effectively at these big companies like Amazon or Microsoft. Um, but that comes at the cost of maybe not learning a lot of the business side of what you're working on. I think about my time at Amazon a lot in that respect of, I got to learn a lot of really strong engineering skills, just basic things and like, how do you really build out a decoupled architecture really well? Like how do you figure out how to do PubSub without any real breakpoints? Things like that that are very vital. but. One of my big regrets is like the majority of the actual business knowledge I gained were siloed in a couple projects where it's like, oh, I happen to work with PMs because these are very customer sensitive projects. I did do a lot of time really plumbing the depths around me of like, okay, how do I improve the fundamentals of Kindle? Because as you're saying, like yeah. you are so uh, isolated and inoculated from the actual business workings. And that that's by design when you have tens of thousands of employees, you can't structure a company such that there's an engineer who also has to really have the linchpins of the business. Or if that does exist, I've never heard of it and I'd be super <laughs> interested in how that's organized. But uh, you can kind of go down that sliding scale. Like you don't have to join a, a series A or a really, really small new company to learn those things. I, I've really enjoyed Stripe being in the middle ground because mm -hmm. I get to work on problems that have legitimate technical depth. But also I spend probably more time talking with sales folks and talking to account managers and talking to really customer adjacent people than I do talking to other engineers outside my team because it's small enough and nimble enough that I get to do a lot of that business adjacent work. You feel like you have a better work-life balance working at Stripe as compared to Amazon or was it the other way around? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think in a weird way, it's been, it's been pretty similar. Um, mm -hmm. I think Amazon, like bluntly gets a, a bad rap. Uh, and I, I don't say gets a bad rap in the sense of, I know there are lots of folks who I've talked to who are friends at Amazon who have like very, very good work-life balance. Um, and there are folks, again, some of whom are friends who have had like miserable experiences at Amazon in terms of working, you know, 60, 70 hour weeks and getting completely burnt out. Amazon, like any company at size, is so decentralized that the the median experience varies so much just depending on what team you're on, what org you're on, For how sure. your manager is, what the management style is like. Um, and my time at Amazon, I was like, definitely had on-call issues, of course, at, like every major company does, but mm -hmm. I was still working uh, pretty reasonable hours, I'd say 40 to 45 hours a week, similar to what I have now at Stripe. Um, I think a lot of that too is having the experience of gone through going through a couple different roles i'm much better now than i was uh when i was a new grad at kind of like planting my my border of this is how i'm going to set out my my times of work uh no one 
whether it's at a small company or a large company, is going to explicitly tell you, hey, stop working, you need to take a break. Uh, sometimes you have a very, very empathetic manager who will, and that's great. But in general, companies aren't designed to say, no, you need to take a break from this. That's something that has to be on mm-hmm. you. You have to be able to figure out what your limits are. And I've realized for me, um, I'm going to burn out in whatever role, even if it's something that I'm really, really passionate about. Uh, if I don't take a break, if I don't say, okay, it's 5.30 or it's 6 p.m., I'm going to go back home and I'm not going to think about coding for the rest of the day. Well, talking about burnout, let's shift gears a bit and talk more about your startups because <laughs> people know startups can take a lot of your time. So why start? Why work on button down and spoon pill? Why spend more time than you have to outside of work building something which is not going to generate an immediate profit, but is probably going to affect your relationships and your and the free time you have? Why do it? For sure. Um, and as context, I think I started. Spoonbill, and I want to say like 2015, so five years ago, and I started Button Down in maybe 2016 or 2017. So they've both been around for a handful of years. Um, and they both, I think, started off less as startups and more as side projects. And I think that's like kind of a, a nitpick in terms of verbiage, but I think it's important because in my mm-hmm. mind, a startup is a thing where you are pouring all of the energy you have into it. You are focusing on the growth of that thing above Mm -hmm. all other things. And a side project is more something that you can work on on weekends and free time and throw the energy you have into, but it's also something you can step away from. I, one of the things I'm proudest about with Spoonbill is I think for a span of it was maybe like 18, 24 months, I just didn't push any code to Spoonbill whatsoever. This was from like 20, early 2018 to like late 2019. I was just like, okay, this does what I want it to do. It's growing users. Like I have a couple people paying for it. I'm just gonna walk away and like let it sit on an AWS box and not really care about it for a bit. Um, and I think it's important to be able to do that because otherwise, otherwise you are gonna burn out. If you're giving yourself any sort of like demand where it's, this is going to take five hours every week from my life from here on out until eternity, that seems like a recipe for disaster. Um, but to, to go back to your question of why build these things, mm-hmm. I wanted to learn stuff. Um, I was in a position where I felt like I had some full stack experience, but not a lot. I had been doing mostly backend engineering at Amazon and in my then current role at a startup for button down, I was doing more of like go to market and more data engineering work. And I was like, I really want to flex my front end design skills. This is something that I felt like I had, you know, back in college, but I haven't been able to use it in so long. And I think it would be fun. And I think it would be useful to kind of like hack on a thing. It was also super helpful that for both Spoonbill and Bundown, these were tools that I really wanted to use. Like I had the kernel for both the ideas because I was just Googling around for something like them and I couldn't find anything. And then, of course, I had the, the worst thought that any programmer can have, which is, oh, I bet I could build this in a weekend, um, <laughs> which is never, ever true. I've been bit by that a fair number of times. Result. Yeah. <laughs> so just to give some more context to the people who might be listening to this, Button Down is a newsletter platform similar to MailChimp. You can run newsletter campaigns using Button Down. If you're starting out, it is cheaper than MailChimp if you have a slower subscriber count. And Spoonbill is mainly to track changes people make to their Twitter profile to use Spoonbill up. So you can basically track people, let's say politicians, and if they change their locations or do something to their profile, then Spoonbill is going to send you a weekly digest telling you, oh, this is something which this person changed. Did I, did I miss anything? 
that's it perfectly. Uh, the one thing I'd add is I've since expanded the scope of Spoonbill a little bit, so it also tracks uh, GitHub changes, um, sadly not LinkedIn changes yet, but Product Hunt and Hacker News as well, um, with the goal of it being not just for a couple specific social media services, but all social media metadata. Perfect. How did you get your first customer? A great question. Um, as sometimes I still ask myself that. Uh, and I'll give two different answers. Um, one is for Spoonbill, which was, I think, the, the prime example of me being a developer at heart and not a marketer at heart, mm -hmm. where Spoonbill for a long time, as I said, was just kind of sitting in maintenance mode. It was, in my mind, feature complete. And I was just like, hmm, this is great. I don't feel like working on this anymore but it's costing me all of like $10 a month to keep running on EC2. So I can just let it running, let it run in perpetuity. Um, and I got an email one day from someone who is using Spoonbill uh, at the Daily Digest. And they were just like, hey, I would pay you know, 70, 80 bucks a month if I could just get this in real time as opposed to getting it every single morning, uh, almost like a Google alert. Mm. And I was like, well, that, that seems like easy money, sure. And I you know, spent a weekend hacking that together just changing some of the internal plumbing in Django. And then I was able to, you know, collect the first payment. Um, and then I was like, there's, there's got to be other people who are doing this exact same thing. So I sent out kind of an email blast to everyone who's using the daily email. Uh, I was like, you know, a couple thousand people. I was like, if four or five other people bite, then this is great. And from that specific email that I sent out, just kind of like a cold email blast, hey, you're getting uh, these daily updates. Would you be interested in upgrading to something you know, even more real time than that. I was able to get another like five or six customers, which was mm -hmm. great. Um, it's still been to the point where I only respond to kind of uh, cold outreach. I haven't performed any of the things that you're supposed to do in terms of like optimizing the pricing funnel and figuring out how to do annual discounts and like all of that stuff. Uh, but being able to get that first customer and realizing that like, oh, this is a valuable thing that I'm offering. This isn't just a toy. Some people are really using this for like marketing purposes and to identify new leads and all that stuff was very eye-opening. For button down, it was kind of a, a similar thing where I was planning on charging for button down just based on volume. Uh, a thing that people don't realize, or at least I didn't realize with sending emails is that emails cost money. Uh, you use what's called like an ESP or email service provider. This is like uh, AWS or Mailgun or SendGrid. And they generally have pretty generous free plans. But once you're sending you know, tens of thousands of emails a month, you have to pay. So it's like, OK, well, I'll do this kind of cost-based pricing, where once you hit 1,000 subscribers, then you pay more money and so on and so forth. Um, but that was my main thought of how to really monetize button down is, OK, once it starts charging me money, uh, then I'll charge the users money. And that's a mm -hmm. terrible idea. You should always go with the value-based pricing, which is how, how valuable do the users find the service. Um, all of that's an aside to say, someone emailed me one day asking for custom domain support. And they're like, well, well button down looks great, but I don't want my newsletter to be buttondown.email slash my username. I want it to be stored on my own custom domain so it can be all white labeled and I can mm -hmm. brand it my own way. I was like, sure. that sounds like a value-based pricing thing. I should figure out some sort of pricing tier. So I created uh, Button Down for Professionals, which was like 29 bucks a month for all of these extra features. If you're using Button Down for just a personal newsletter, but a bunch of other stuff as well. I feel like both of those are 
most bad examples. If you <laughs> read about launching a start or launching a side project, it's all this stuff about like, okay, well, you should figure out your pricing plan, figure out your go-to-market and uh, realize who your target customer mm -hmm. is. And all of those things are completely true. But because I start out with both these tools of like, I just want to build a thing for me and I'll figure out the rest of the details later. It meant I only really started collecting money once people were like, oh, I want to use this and I'm going to assume that you're like a reasonable person who has a pricing plan and all this stuff. And then I had to do a little bit of uh, chicanery on the back end to, to wire things up as quickly as possible. But I think that was still like a super good learning experience because it meant I figured out how to build out the value for these products first as opposed to figuring out how to build out the pricing. But I feel like that is something which if you are, if you actually build something, a lot of people make this mistake of trying to figure out how to monetize something without even having anything in place. So in my opinion, I think it is much better to actually have something and then figure out how you're going to monetize it. Obviously this varies from project to project, but for most programmers who I know or who I have talked to, this seems to be the one way almost all of them work. They will come up with a project and then they will figure out how I'm supposed to monetize this. Because a lot of people actually have projects running on the back burner when someone just like in your case tells you that, oh, I'm actually willing to pay for this. And then you start figuring out how to do this. So did you have any other resources which you use to figure out how to price this? Like I know you talked about value pricing, but like did you, I don't know, follow any other project which you were using and figure out how they were doing something? or? How did that work out? Because pricing is a really difficult question. Yeah, totally. Uh, for Spoonbill, it was pretty much an absolute crapshoot of, I was like, there's no real services that are analogous to this. Um, like there, for a lot of social media based tracking stuff, it, it's sort of the abyss between two different price points where there's one price point that's completely free and very limited. And then there's enterprise pricing where the canonical example is the Twitter API itself. Uh, Twitter API has two price points, free and thousands of dollars a month uh, for like firehose and really enterprise access. And so it's like, neither of those are very helpful. I'm going to pick something that seems relatively high for me, but probably enough that if the person is cold emailing me to ask to pay for it, they're not going to bulk at the price. Um, for button down, I was able to be a little more rigorous because it was a product that exists in a pretty rich landscape. Like there are a lot of email marketing mm -hmm. and newsletter and outreach tools. And so I was able to look at uh, the entire landscape of like, okay, well, you've got your MailChimps of the world that are very focused on the e-commerce and marketing case um, that are also relatively high, high market. Uh, they're charging the highest margin. On the other side of the spectrum, you have things like MailerLite or going very close to the wire mm -hmm. with things like uh, Mailgun or simple, yeah, exactly, or Sendy, where it's, it is much lower margin, the deal is better. Like if you were to graph it of like price per subscriber, those are definitely on the lower end, mm -hmm. um, but you get less out of the box and you have to do more configuration work yourself. So here I was like, okay, how do I make sure I undercut, say that the MailChimps of the world while still being priced such that I'm having somewhat, somewhere in the middle worth of value. Um, and there I think I was able to do what I would consider the quote unquote more correct thing of like, I did a rigorous analysis of here are all my competitors, here are their different price points and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, Spoonbill is definitely a little bit of a crapshoot. Okay, so I looked through Spoonbill and I, I asked myself this question, who exactly is the target audience for this product? Like I know for journalists, this might be pretty useful. Like what exactly is your target audience for that? 
Great question. Um, and I think that contributed to me not realizing that it was something I could charge for because in my mind, uh, you know, Twitter bios and locations and stuff, like it is a fun thing to pay attention to, but mm -hmm. it doesn't have any value. And then I realized, you no, know, there are people who find this very, very useful. The, the three sort of tiers I think about, or three groups rather, would be journalists, people who are actively doing research, who want access to sort of trends and who want to be the first to know when someone shifts. Um, investors who are often, especially on the like early deal stage. So if you're an investor that specializes in series A or seed funding, and you're like, I want to know whenever anyone from say Square leaves and starts their own thing, because I want to be the first person to like have a meeting with them to get my name, get my foot mm. in the door as it were. Um, so they're a really big contingent. And then lastly, along the similar lines is recruiters. Recruiters are really interested, mm -hmm. especially within the tech industry, of seeing when people are moving companies. It, it seems like one of those kind of silly things, but if someone goes from like engineer at Twitter previously, <laughs> uh, blah, 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 to just like engineer mm -hmm. previously at Twitter, that's like such a huge signal. I think one of the, things that more and more people are realizing is that for your average engineer, uh, LinkedIn actually gets updated after your Twitter profile or after your blog. Yeah, because LinkedIn is kind of the afterthought. Cool. You're, you're like, all right, well, it's time to look for a new job. Like, I guess I'll change my thing on LinkedIn, but not after you remove it from your bio or you tell some people or you update your blog. And so people are really interested, especially for these like headhunting, like staff engineer type positions. They're really interested in what is the earliest possible signal I can get that someone's interested in a new position. Because the, I mean, the margin on some of these tech recruiting things are at least to me bonkers. Like successful tech recruiters who can mm -hmm. place a staff engineer or a senior level engineer, like the margin is very high. And so, if they're willing to pay a non-trivial sum every month, if it means like, hey, maybe I will be the first person as opposed to the fourth person in this person's inbox. That makes perfect sense. Imagine my surprise when I recently found out that a lot of these hedge funds actually track private flights of these bigger companies yeah. just to figure out where which companies are probably going to get merged. I was like, come on, how who does that? But yeah, people are out there doing that. Let's talk about some of the more exciting stuff, which I know a lot of other startups don't do, but now there's a changing trend. There is a thing called open startups where you share the financials and your startup button down is one of those. I found out that you are maybe spending around 1200 to $1,300 per month and your other projects are probably earning you around $5,000 in monthly recurring revenue. What is your aim? Where do you want to see this going? Is that some, and first of all, before even that, why go the open startup route where you are sharing all the financials? Isn't that something which people frown upon? Like, oh, my friends are gonna know how much I'm making. They'll start asking me for money or something along those lines. I just, honestly, when I was first starting out in kind of this like indie hackers space uh -huh. uh, back then in like 2014, 2015, I just found it endlessly fascinating to read through these posts by people before it was called like open startups and it was just sort of like, hey, I'm transparently running this business. Here's where the money goes. Because that was a side of things that I'd never really thought about or considered or seen before. And it was so eye-opening of like, oh my God, they're paying this much just for image hosting and all of this stuff. I found it so cool. Um, and I don't have any like explicit reason why I started doing it. It was just, I guess, like the closest thing I could say is paying it forward because I always found it interesting reading mm -hmm. that stuff. And I know other people probably find it interesting too. So might as well put it out there. 
um, I think in terms of the like anxiety of sharing a lot of this money, uh-huh. it definitely helps that like I am uh, I am not basing my my annual income or anything off of these side projects or off of these startups. It's it is more like uh, side money or almost monopoly money in a sense. Um, mm-hmm. These expenses and the the MRR that's coming in is very very nice, but it's nothing that like I feel particularly anxious about. I try and donate a lot of it back to the software that. Uh, button down runs, for example, and it always just it felt like a natural thing to do and to share. Um, and I I hope that like there's kind of the snowball effect where more as more and more companies do this of almost every size. Like I think you're never going to see uh, really big compl- public companies completely public <laughs> costs, but yeah. you almost see it now as more and more people who are using like the bare metrics integration, for example, uh-huh. like these companies are increasing in size. And so you get to see more and more granularity. I think in terms of the risks, like this is probably going to uh, disqualify any of my projects from like getting VC funding, which is completely <laughs> fine because I don't feel like getting VC funding. That's uh, it's one of those things that just isn't really appealing to me. Where do you want to take this? Like you are earning, let's say if you're earning $5,000 per month in monthly recurring revenue and you are spending 1200 or 1300 per month, then it's $3,700, $3,800. Where do you feel like this price would get before you can stop your full-time job? Or is that even a plan? And Yeah, and so I think the irony is if you had asked me two years ago, uh-huh. um, like, hey, would you, you know, do this full time if say button down reached 2k MRR, I would have been like, sure, absolutely. Yes, that seems like a great threshold. As soon as it meets that, I will, you know, start devoting all of my time to it. And then of course that happened. And I was like, ooh, no, that doesn't seem like the right time. Maybe once it hits 4k. Um, And then of course that rolled around too. And it's like, well, no, I think the truth is, uh, I definitely at some point in my life want to work full time on my own projects. But I I don't think really money is going to be the threshold there. Um, <laughs> frankly, like I, I enjoy my day job too much. I love the folks I work with. I love what I get to learn. And this is kind of going back a bit to the breadth versus depth thing of, I feel like right now being in like my, my mid to late twenties, what I want to do is optimize for being in the place where I can learn the most as quickly as possible. And even if, you know, my MRR from these projects had doubled or tripled, I still think that place is straight. I think that that time or that point in time might pass, but at least right now it's just like, oh, I get to sort of have my cake and eat it too. I have a day job that I get to invest a lot of my time and energy into, and I feel immensely rewarded by. Then I also have these side projects that I get to, uh, that I get to be fortunate in the sense of I'm past the plateau of like doing all of the pre-launch things. And now it's in the more stable period where I can invest time in, improving marketing funnels and adding new features to bring in the customer base, but they're more or less self-sufficient. If I wanted to, I could completely back away from Bundown and spend, you know, an hour or so a week answering customer support things and doing really small bug fixes and like that would be it. But uh, I want to do more with it. I want to keep growing it, not because it's like, oh, I need to hit this MRR target because otherwise I can't pay rent. It's, oh, I want to improve this thing because I think it would be cool and I think it would improve the product. Um, and I think there is a, uh, a privilege in having a project that you're not financially dependent on because it mm-hmm. means you can make choices and investments that aren't tied to, okay, what is the best return from this? It's For more sure. like, okay, how do I want to spend my time on this? 
So is there no immediate plan to increase the team or maybe take button down as a sole start of your focusing on other than your day job? I think there's if I were to make like a next step with button down, it definitely wouldn't be me adding more time to it. If anything, it would be me figuring out how to d- divest myself a little bit from it. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's two real big, really big areas where this happens, which are uh, things like customer support mm-hmm. and things like, again, really small bug fixes, both of which are uh, things that objectively I can outsource to other folks, whether it's through a virtual assistant or, you know, like an, an intern or a freelancer. Mm-hmm. Um, like. The button downs code base is not so complex that only I can understand it. Uh, it's definitely something that other folks can contribute uh-huh. to, but it has a bus factor of one right now. So I think if I were to hit the next break point where it's, you know, okay, it's now at 8K MRR, I'm going to bring someone in to work on the product for like, you know, 10 to 15 hours a week just doing bug fixes and kind of uh, performance improvements and that sort of thing or I want to reclaim some of my time from just answering emails and doing outreach and stuff like that, so I'll hire a VA to help me out with that. Um, again, more optimizing for my time as opposed to giving my time more to button down, if that makes sense. Perfect, yeah, for sure. And I know running a startup can be stressful. You might have to run a database migration in the middle of the night when it doesn't affect anyone, and sometimes that can completely blow up in your face any major incidents that have happened over the years and something which has kept you awake at night. Yeah, uh, database migrations are, I think, a funny bad off example because it's both like the most cliche thing and also, at least uh-huh. in my experience, the most true thing of um, just, and like you learn so many lessons about like, you got to take a snapshot of your database and like mm-hmm. only do backwards compatible migrations. And then inevitably at least once or twice a year, I break those rules and I am suitably punished for it. Um, I think the, so so two entertaining examples, uh, one for Spoonbill, one for Bundown. Um, Spoonbill had, uh, I, I built it again in, I think 2015 when I didn't know a lot of really good best practices around database design. Mm-hmm. And so one of the classic things that I did was I had a auto incrementing primary key for mm-hmm. one of my databases. Uh, it was like sort of the idea of the uh, Twitter update of like someone changing their bio or someone replacing some text on their profile. And Mm -hmm. that was like an auto incrementing PK, which meant uh, both it was bad in terms of database database access, like just in terms of perf. And also it meant that if someone was really determined, they could very easily crawl all of Spoonbill by just going to like, okay, what's ID equals one and then two. Yeah, yeah. We have all seen that happening pretty often in the wild. Yeah. And so I, I realized, oh, I need to just bite the bullet and update this to a UUID, something that can't really be spoofed or can't be crawled as easily. And I tried to do it the correct way, which was, okay, I'm going to backfill a UUID for everything, swap over the BK index, um, mm-hmm. then drop the PK column. And of course, I messed up that second and third step of I dropped the PK column before I swapped it over. And it was, like there was no interesting reason. It was just me being dumb in Postgres. And often, I think a lot of the um, a lot of the postmortems that you read from uh, companies like you know AWS and all this is people can be really well intentioned and people can mean to do the exact right thing and still screw it up. I know I do it all the time. One of the most helpful books I read was Checklist Manifesto, which was this idea of like even if you think you know 
the right thing to do, you have to write it out and you have to consult that list because otherwise you're not going to do it. Mm. Um, so so that, that was Spoonbill. That was one of the like most classic examples of just uh, take database migration seriously, do it on a staging database first, like take all the precautions or else um, you're going to have a very stressful hour. Um, and then for button down, this was more on the third party side of things where button down uses a really great ESP called Mailgun, which I like a lot. And but the way button down works is the vast majority of your transactional emails go through a very specific domain. So it's mg.bundown.email. Uh, that's where all of your like subscription or new sign up emails will come from. And this was also like a classic single point of failure thing where when I built out this domain, it was when I was still in the MVP stage of the product mm -hmm. and I wasn't like, oh, well, what happens if this specific domain fails? Like, how do I fail over to a different provider or any one of mm -hmm. those things? Um, and just due to like an administrative error uh, on a combination of my side and Mailgun side, that domain just got completely deleted for around four hours. So I had a four hour span one Tuesday night where I was just like, I can't Damn. send any emails. Unless you have a custom domain, nothing is getting sent out. Um, and this was, again, like one of those benefit of hindsight things of just like, uh -huh. oh, well, of course I should have had a backup domain on Mailgun and I should have had a secondary ESP. But it's harder for me when I'm in side project mode to do all of those like deliberate steps of like, uh -huh. oh, you have to do the safe thing and all of those things. Um, and of course, that was an eye-opening experience. And now I have many uh, failover points. I think I'm now at five. So it's like a just in case anything really falls down, I can always flip a switch and route it to some other provider. Um, and were people using button down at that point? And if so, what was their reaction? Yeah, yeah this was last year. I want to say this was August of last year. Um, and it was at the point where it was, it was an evening, so traffic was relatively low. Most people are sending emails in the morning, but mm -hmm. people still realized. Uh, and so I you know, did all the frantic things. I didn't have a status page then, but I frantically sent a bunch of tweets and like added a kind of a warning bar to the main interface. And then I hacked together a AWS integration as fast as humanly possible. Um, mm -hmm. I think I, I clocked it in at like 75 minutes um, and then was able to like remediate things until the underlying issue was resolved. But I think that was one of the really eye-opening things to going back a bit in terms of like having a side project graduate to a like, oh, people are paying me money for this. And it is like my responsibility to make sure this stays up or else like bad things are happening. Yeah, uh, for you, sure. You graduate from that like, oh, this is a free tool. If it's not working, no one really has any umbrage to complain to a like, oh, some people are literally running their business or using this as their crucial marketing tool. And I have a responsibility to them to like make sure it, it always has uptime. Like I'm not talking four nines uptime, but you should be able to log in every single day type stuff. And so that was very eye-opening there where I then spent the next three months like kind of revisiting a lot of my base assumptions mm -hmm. and being like, okay, this is no longer a toy application. How do I make sure that like the API is identified? How do I make sure that a single ESP going down can't tank deliverability and all of those other things. So right now, do you have a custom API, which is sort of mapping to all of these different ESPs or how does that work? Yeah, the uh, the ESP mapping is completely internal. The, the goal here is that like, based on things like pricing model shifting, I can migrate all of the traffic over to a given ESP and have it be completely 
uh, hidden from the, the customer. Mm -hmm. And that's mostly making sure that I have like really warm, high deliverability IPs on each of those ESPs. Um, the, the publicly facing API is more in the sense of uh, button down offers like a REST API where you can, if you don't wanna gather your, your subscribers through a form, but say you want to pipe them in after they've registered on your application, you can just uh, hit a post request on api.bundown.email slash subscribers and add new people that way or trigger new emails that way. So I know when you have a project like this, which is high visibility, even if you have a day job, it can lead to certain benefits. Like for me personally, uh, running a blog, writing a book, all of that has indirectly led me to receive a lot of uh, positive experiences and has opened a lot of doors for me. And I can only imagine how much these projects have in the doors for you. Do you mind shedding some light on that? Absolutely. I think there's um, two versions of that. One is kind of the ownership and one is the, the people. And when I talk about ownership, this is almost me parroting my earlier point, but I think one of the things that I never really got to experience at a company like Amazon was this idea of like, I am the sole owner of this specific tool, um, which is like a lot of privilege in terms of being able to dictate exactly how you want it to build and grow, but also a lot of uh, responsibility in the sense of you are the the linchpin, the, the one person bus factor. Uh, you are the person who has to kind of hold everything. Um, and that's helped me with really internalizing trade-offs in terms of making decisions of like, okay, uh, historically I've always been kind of an over-engineering type of person of like, I need to figure out the perfect architecture for this no matter what. And running button down has really helped me figure out how to be more like, okay, but do you do the perfectly engineered thing that takes three months or do you do the 95% thing that takes three days? Um, I find myself choosing the latter more and more now, even though that might not be the, the correct answer, again, at really large scale companies, being mm -hmm. able to actually have that decision process well managed within yourself, I've found very useful. Um, and then the, the second bit, and I think this, this sounds very similar to your experience, is just, I get so many people uh, reaching out to me because of Spoonbill, because of Bundown. I get to talk with like journalists and VCs and folks, and I get to have really interesting conversations with users that otherwise I would have never talked to. Um, learning entire niches has been really fun, especially with Bundown, where I basically have a folder in my official button down uh, like Gmail inbox. It's just every single email someone has sent out with button down and every now and then I get to kind of poke through them and just read through them like I'm a subscriber. And it's so fun to see what people are writing about it. It seems like a dumb thing, but it's basically just a fire hose of newsletter content um, and reading through what people are passionate about, whether it's you know poetry or weird niche German history stuff. Like there are a couple of history newsletters on it. Um, has been really fun and really rewarding. And getting to talk with these folks and see what so many people are passionate about has been really, really rewarding. I feel like you're probably the only person who subscribes to every single newsletter he can find and then reads to them as well. And <laughs> how, how, how many people are using Button Down right now? It's, I honestly forget the exact MAUs. Uh -huh. I think I'm at around like 12,000. Um, and that's free plus paid uh, MAUs. I think the for a while I built out this kind of very nice dashboard that had like all of the monthly actives and how many subscribers were joining the platform and how many like uh, emails were being sent out and word count and all of this stuff because I was going through a very big like data viz phase. 
And then I realized like, <laughs> oh, I'm not actually like looking at all this stuff. I spent eight hours like hooking up this dashboard and I've looked at it twice in the past three months. Um, I think one of the, again, one of these like bad founder habit type things is I've been really bad at like looking at dashboards and looking at data because being in the position where none of this is my day job and none of this is having that series of a financial impact means tracking MRR and tracking churn and all this stuff isn't really important. Um, I get to focus more on like, what is the important part of the tool for me? How do I want to make it improve as opposed to being like, all right, well, how do I make this graph go up? Because I need to make sure that I'm satisfying some PM or some OKR. I feel like once you start a startup, the biggest thing to learn is as a hacker, sometimes you're excited about this really tiny things, but as a startup founder or like some, even something as a side project, which is earning you money, you sort of have to find a balance between something you really are excited about and something which you actually need. Because pretty often all of us are just excited about the technical details rather than actual business benefits of something. <laughs> <laughs> Time though, I am trying to get better at uh, eating my vegetables, metaphorically speaking. One of the things that I've never been excited about is things like the, the go-to-market pages and building out marketing pages and building out like the conversion funnel and all of that. Um, not because I don't think it's important, but again, I'm a developer at heart. Like I just want to make the tool better. And so mm -hmm. one of my big projects for Noon has been actually building out these like marketing pages and feature pages and competitor pages and all of these things, even though it's like not an exciting thing. I'm like, oh, this is a skill I want to get better at. Even if I'm not like super amped about it, I realize that it's important for the, the quote unquote business. Perfect. I think we should be closing this now. Do you have any advice for people who might be interested in running a side project, which we haven't touched upon in this interview so far? Uh, besides the obvious, which I think is do it, um, it's very rewarding. It's not a risky thing whatsoever. Um, I think one of the things that I wish I had known when I started out was to optimize for time away in the sense of one of the things that I see a lot of folks starting projects kind of shoot themselves in, a, in the foot a little bit with is being like, okay, I'm going to have a model that predates itself on me having to do something every single day, whether it's like a daily newsletter or it's a, I think Unsplash is like a really like almost inverse example of this, which was mm -hmm. they originally started out by having 10 photos every day, which ended up being a very successful model. But it meant if you are say a college student or someone who's just trying to learn something new, you are adding a time tax to yourself with a project. I would encourage you to find something that is more durable. Find a project that might have a very big lead time, but then once you've launched it, you can leave it and let it sit for three months and then come back to it. I found, going back to burnout a little bit, I found myself often really burnt out with side project work. Like I work a lot, I spend a lot of my time in front of a screen doing coding. And it's necessary for me to have an entire month or even multiple months where I'm just like not coding whatsoever. And previously buttoned down especially just wasn't in a point where it could be that way. Like I had too much customer service, there was too much infrastructural flakiness. And the most rewarding investment I've had was making sure that Bundown was a little more on autopilot mode. So I'd encourage you, if you're finding a project, do whatever it takes, whether it's reducing the scope or having a clear finish line or something along those lines, so you can just get through the process of shipping something. Because shipping is like the most exciting part, like actually putting out a finished thing into the world and being like, well, that's done. I can improve it, but it's done. That I think is more important than having something that has an infinite time horizon. 
Perfect. Thank you so much, Justin. That was pretty insightful, and I'm glad I got to sit down with you. And I just hope that we can sit down again, let's say a couple of months or even a year or two from now. And hopefully by that time, we'll be celebrating some other milestone in your project's life. Fingers crossed. It was my pleasure. Thanks for reaching out, and it was so much fun chatting with you.